Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the RhinoCast podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kitties. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. This week on the Rhino Podcast, we celebrate the 40th anniversary of Rod Stewart's Blondes Have More Fun and talk with master drummer Carmine Apice about his career, his time playing with Rod, and his recollections on recording and touring this classic album. Hey, Dennis. Well, I happen to know that today's podcast involves an anniversary of an album that went double platinum in the U.S. That's correct. And actually, that album went platinum a month and a half after its release in 1978. Wow. I also know that there were some amazing players on this record and that you talked to one of them that is most definitely rock and roll royalty. Absolutely. I had a great conversation with Carmine Apice, one of the best and hardest-hitting rock drummers that's out there. He's played with a who's who of rock and roll royalty, and he was the drummer and songwriter on Blondes Have More Fun, the Rod Stewart record that really shot Rod into the stratosphere career-wise. Brooklyn Boy, Vanilla Fudge, Cactus, Beck Bogart Apice. Yep. Incredible. And he played, by the way, on four of Rod's albums, as a matter of fact. That's correct. He was on Footloose and Fancy Free, Blondes Have More Fun, Foolish Behavior, and Tonight I'm Yours. And some other trivia, only two solo number one hits for Rod Stewart, Maggie May and... And Do You Think I'm Sexy. That's right. And, that's right. And, and, and you could not have a more disparate pair of number ones. You got your rock and roll... And Rod went disco. Blondes Have More Fun went to number one on the U.S. album charts and went on to sell more than 14 million copies worldwide. Carmine Apice, welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Well, thank you very much. The Blondes Have More Fun album is one of my favorite albums. Well, it's 40th anniversary. It was huge for Rod. It led to the biggest tour that he'd ever had up to that point, and you were a major part of it. But your start was with Vanilla Fudge. Why don't you tell us how you got hooked up with them and got going in the music biz? Basically, my Vanilla Fudge trip started in 1966. 
I was asked to join a group called The Pigeons. They said, we're going to try and make it with these big production numbers that are going on in Long Island that the Vagrants were doing. So that was the thing in Long Island then, it was to do arrangements, you know, so production numbers, we called them. We used to be called The Pigeons, and Armin Erdogan, when he was signing us, said, I hate that name, we need a new name. You know, and Ahmed was the president and the chairman of the board of Atlantic and ATCO and all that stuff. And yeah. so somebody came up with the idea that we were like a white soul. So Vanilla Fudge sort of fit that white soul thing. So then we became Vanilla Fudge and we started doing the arrangements. And because we had four vocalists and we had really four really good musicians, so that separated us a little bit from everybody else. And especially Mark Stein, who was an amazing vocalist, you know. Yeah. The only other band that was like uh, that was going around that had a, a vocal of that, the two bands, the, the Vagrants had Les Leslie West as one of the vocalists, and you had Billy Joel in the Hassles, but he didn't make it for another seven or eight years after that, you know. But he How was funny. As you know, Billy Joel was a great voice and great writer and all that. So we happened to make it, and the song "Keep Me Hanging On." Right was the one that broke us. We did a demo with Shadow Morton. He presented it to Ahmed and presented it on the radio to Murray Kay. And they played it and did contests, and we kept winning the contests, and then Ahmed signed us on that demo. Yeah, that was a huge hit for you guys. Two times, you know. And the amazing thing about The Fudge is when the album came out, the album went from number 200 to number 33 in the second week. The single Hanging On only went up to maybe number 60, 65 at that time. But the album went all the way to number four. That was an amazing thing back then, because usually in order to get a big album like that, you need a smash single. Everybody else always had smash singles. We didn't. Then the smash single came later, a year later, and they re-released Hanging On in September 68, which was a year and two months later. And then it went to number four. And then at that time, we had two other albums on the charts and the first album was still number 70, but it brought the first album back up to the top 15. So we had two albums in the top 20 and one album, one other album in the top 50 and a top four single. You guys were crushing it. Yeah, we were killing yeah. Set me free, So you were out touring, people wanted to open for you, and of course, one of the interesting bands that opened for you in 1969 was none other than Led Zeppelin. Actually, it was 1968, December 26th. It was in Denver, Colorado. Spirit Vanilla Fudge was like a, I think it was a five to 7,000 seat arena there. It was already sold out, and the agent was the same agent we had, and Zeppelin had the same lawyer that we had, and we knew Peter Graham, the manager, and so between the managers, the lawyer, and the agent, they booked Zeppelin on an already sold-out show that the um, promoter didn't want to pay $1,500 for them because it was already sold out. They didn't need them. So we made a deal that Vanilla Fudge would pay half to $1,500, and the promoter would pay half. And that's how Zeppelin got on that first date in America, the very first show in America. Wow, that was very generous, you guys. Yeah, I know. I said, boy, how about some interest on that? Pay us back. <laughs> was it true that you got John Bonham his endorsement with Ludwig Drums? I did. 
I called them up and told them that John Bonham was a great drummer and they were a new band and I thought they were going to be big. And he wanted a drum set just like mine, which had the two big maple 26 bass drums and a big floor tom in the middle, two big toms on the side, three cymbals and a hi-hat and a gong. (laughs) He saw my kit and just flipped out and said, man, can you help me get a set like that? So I said, yeah. When I called him and said, you know, these guys are going to be big. That's like an understatement of five decades, you know? Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. What ran through your mind the very first time you saw them play? Well, you know, we we blew a lot of bands off the stage in those days. Mm -hmm. We were saying, who's going to blow us off? It was them. Wow. Once we saw them, we said, oh, my God, these guys are really incredible. So... You know, on that particular tour, they didn't blow us off on that tour, but the next tour, their album was out, and their album was gold already, and they, they already caught up to us as far as how big we were. They were that big already in six months. Really? You know, so we, so next, was the second tour more of a co-headlining tour? It was a co-headlining tour. Did you ever get a chance to jam with John at all, do a double drummer thing just on stage, you know, sound check time or anything? Yeah, not, not full drums, like... Like when they went on uh, one time, we went on, me and Timmy went on and played how many more times in place of John Paul Jones and, and Bonzo, you know? Oh, really? Yeah, in the middle part, they, they Robert and Jimmy did this big, you know, bow and vocal thing. And then the drums yeah. come in, you go, you know, right into the song again. Yeah. You know, and we saw like uh, Robert elbowed Jimmy and said, turn around, look at that. It was me and Tim playing. Then we would play Shotgun. And they would come on and play with us, and John would, you know, take, pick up a pair of sticks and bang on the floor, Tom Tom, and the cymbals and stuff next to me, you know. Oh man, you guys must have had a blast. Those were the fun days because it wasn't really a business yet, you know. Right, you're just there for the love of the music, really. We were, and, and just having a great time. You know, the whole scene was different. There was all the groupies. Nobody was really, you know, everybody was into partying after gigs. Not like today, you know, we're all too old for that, you know. (laughs) What led you to leave Vanilla Fudge? Well, you know, we were having internal problems with the the guitar player. You know, he did too many drugs at one point. And one of the gigs we did uh, in 1969 before we started the Led Zeppelin tour with us was a a gig with Jeff Beck Group. Ten years after, Jeff Beck Group and Vanilla Fudge, and we were the headliners. But Zeppelin went up and jammed that night, and it would just tore the house down, you know, and we had to follow that. And then that night, um, Bonzo told me that Jeff Beck wanted to play with me and Tim. So it yeah. was going to be me, Rod, Jeff, and Tim originally, and we were going to call it Cactus. And then Rod didn't want to work with Jeff because of his financial problems. And then uh, it was me, Jeff, and Tim, and we were going to get you know, find another singer. But then Jeff had a car wreck, you know, one of his hot rods, and put him 18 months behind in a hospital and recouping, you know, recovering. So we found Jim McCarty, who was in Mitch Ryder and Detroit Wheels, and Buddy Miles, who was a fairly known guitar player. He was American. And Rusty Day, who was a singer for uh, the Amboy Dukes. So it was like a super group, but it was on a, on a smaller level without Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart. So Cactus did okay. And then we got another call from Jeff Beck's camp saying that Jeff still wants to play with us. And he was getting ready for a summer tour, and he wanted me and Tim to join him on the summer tour. And it was the Jeff Beck group featuring me, me, Tim, and Jeff. So after Beck Bogart apiece, how did you get the call to go join Rod? Well, basically, 
there was another band in between that that took me out to the West Coast to live, which was a, a gr group called KGB. KGB had Mike Bloomfield, Barry Goldberg. I brought Rick Gretsch from Blind Faith with me. Rick Gretsch, a singer named uh, Ray Kennedy. And it was like a super group. And that, you know, we recorded, and Mike Bloomfield was a real strange one. He wouldn't come to L.A. to record. He said he couldn't sleep in L.A. <laughs> Crazy, right? <laughs> couldn't sleep in L.A. So we did the tracks with a session guy, and then we all had to go up to San Francisco where he lived and recorded the record plant up there and get Mike, you know, in the record plant and finish the album. You know, it came out on MCA Records, and it got number one airplay, rock airplay around the country. And we started doing interviews, and, and Mike did an interview with Robert Hilburn from the L.A. Times. Mike Bloomfield's telling everybody, you know, via the L.A. Times, that he would never play with me and Rick or with Ray Kennedy, that it's not his cup of tea kind of musicians. And and it was done by big management, and that's the only reason why he was there. And, I, and we went crazy, you know. The record company went crazy. Anyway, we ended up throwing him out. You know, so while we threw him out, we threw out Rick Gretsch, too, because once he got some money, he was back on heroin, you know? Oof. So, and then we so did, you guys never got to play live, did you? We played one show live, not with that. We had this guy, Greg Sutton and Benny Schultz, replace those two guys, and we went out on a tour with Joe Cocker. And Joe, those are the days when Joe Cocker was throwing up on the side of the stage in, into a rubbish bin. I ran into a friend of mine, Sandy Gennaro, that lived in California at the time. And I said, hey, how you doing? He goes, I just came back from an audition with Rod Stewart. I said, oh, cool. Did you get it? He says, no, I didn't get it. He said, you should call him. I said, okay. Now, when we were Cactus, before we broke up with the original band, we did 30 or 40 shows with the Faces. You know, so we knew Rod. You know, I knew Rod from the Jeff Beck group. We knew Ronnie from the Jeff Beck group. Then we met the other guys, and we hung out, and we tore up hotels together, and we, we did, you know, we were already into that, that whole phase of our career of destroying each other's rent-a-car and all that stuff, you know? <laughs> you know, so I called Pete Buckland, who was the, uh, the, the ringleader of all that stuff, and I said, Pete, it's Carmine, you know, you're looking for a drummer? I would love to play with Rod. So he said, let me call Rod and tell him. So he calls Rod, he calls me back, says, well, look, the band is here, auditioning drummers, why don't you come down and see if you like the band? I said, oh, that's a switch. I'm going to see if I like the band. Okay. I took my good car up to see Rod, because I figured, you know, I knew Rod was a, a car guy, so I went right. up to, I took my Pantera with me, and then I, when I drove into Rod's house, he had all these Ferraris and Lamborghinis and you know, Mercedes and Porsches and everything. And he had a six-car garage. So they cleared four of the cars out, and the cars were sitting up in the circular drive. And I put the Pantera up there, and then I went into the garage, and they had the, the band gear set up. And if you go beyond the garage, they had like a pool and a pool house. And that's where the guys were. They were all in their bathing suits, hanging out by the pool, <laughs> enjoying Rod's house, you know. Rod was in London, so I said, no, this is the kind of band I want to be in, you know? Yeah, no kidding. Right, so, so we played together, and it was, it was great. That's guy Billy Peake playing guitar. Gary Granger was a young guy that did, like, Joe Walsh stuff. Jim Cregan was a, you know, a, an all-around kind of good, really good guitar player. Billy Peake was a Chuck Berry expert. There was Phil Chen, this guy John Jarvis on keyboard, and me. And we played, and it was great. We had a great time. So, uh, but Rod wasn't there that time. Rod wasn't there. So Pete said, what do you think? I said, 
I like it. I would love to do this. He said, oh, let me call Rod. He calls Rod. So Rod says he's coming back in a couple of days that I should come back. So I came back, and we played now with Rod. And then Rod looked at me, and he took me to the side. He said, look, I, if you want to do this, you know, I'd love to have you. Uh, I, I know you have fans out there. He said, you could do a drum solo, keep your fans happy. And it was actually a really fair deal, considering, you know, Rod was really big on his own. But on the tours, he gave the band, like, a percentage of the road, which was really nice of him, you know? It's very generous, yeah. And what year was this? It was 1976. I think it was, like, August. And so what was the first thing you guys did together? Did you start rehearsing back yes. catalog material with Yeah, we, we started rehearsing for a tour that was coming up. He had a European tour booked. Started in Trondheim, uh, Norway, in a little theater. You know, but we rehearsed for six weeks every day, you know, including wow. weekends. We might have had one day off, but I mean, you know, really, Rod really, you know, this was his baby coming out, his own band. You know, we yeah. were called the Rod Stewart Group, you know, and we were, we were like the band that he handpicked to come out with, you know. Right. We rehearsed and we really were tight and we really got really good. First gigs were good and then, you know, it got tighter and tighter. And then after that tour, I know we spent Christmas in uh, London that year, but then we recorded the Blondes Have More Fun album. You were the co-writer on Do You Think I'm Sexy on Blondes Have More Fun. I Tell was. us about the songwriting process. Tell us about how you guys came up with that one. Well, well, basically, Rod was always looking at charts, you know, and saying, yeah. I want a song like that. You know, like if you listen to the Mighty Quing there's, there's chord changes in there that we ripped and put it in You're In My Heart, you know? So he always did that. Interesting. Yeah, so so he he was like, I want a song like Mr. Like the Rolling Stones. He told the whole band, you know? Yeah. So we all went back to our places, and I had a keyboard and I had a drum machine, and I, I went and I came up with some changes. Then I went to my buddy Dwayne Hitching's house, and I put the song down in his 8-track studio. We had a TX 8-track tape studio, and we put it down, and we had a bridge, and we had a melody to a bridge and everything. So when I presented it to Rod, it sounded pretty good. So I gave it to Rod, and he, he loved it. And I said, wow, I can't believe he's actually loving my idea. And of all the ideas, he picked my idea, you know? Yeah, and then we, cool. then we developed yeah. it as a band, and we had a few different arrangements of it. We had a really rock version of it that we liked. But then I don't know if it was Tom or Rod wanted to tone it down a little bit. It was thought it maybe was too rocky. So, and then yeah. we went in the studio and we had a few different arrangements of it. And finally, when we hit upon the arrangement, we had me, the three guitars, or actually me and two guitars, Cregan Granger, Phil Chen, David Foster was on keyboard. How about that? And we, yeah, before he was a producer. And I think John Jarvis might have been playing some, some sort of keyboard on it as well, you know. And we had this guy, uh, a percussionist, which I can't remember the name of him. You know, Latin guy, and he, it was great. He played Kungas and Oh, was it uh, Paulino da Costa? Yes, I think it was Paulino, yep. So we put the track down a bunch of times with a click track. It was only me and Paulino had the click track. Everyone else didn't. And then finally we right. got it down, and it sounded big. It sounded like a big rock track. Next thing we know, Tom Dowd came in, put up another 24 track, and then we got two 24 tracks. And he put an orchestra on it. Before you know it, the second 24 track was filled up, right? Wow. And when, and when you record, whenever you put something in, 
something, you know, takes the space of something else. So we filled up one 24-track. Now we got two 24-tracks. That's 48 tracks. So naturally, the basic track that we have that was humongous is going to shrink in size. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you got to make room sonically for everything else. Yeah. It shrunk in size and ended up the way it came out. But Andy Johns was the engineer, and he mixed it. I had gotten Andy Johns into it because Andy worked with me with Jeff Beck, you know, BBA, and I thought it was amazing. We got great drum sounds together. Yeah. So he mixed it. When we heard it, we said, oh, man, it, it, what happened to the big rock sound? And Tom said, well, we had to make room for everything else. But it sounded great, and, you know, who's going to argue? It went to number one in every free world country. What about lyrics on that one? Did you collaborate with Rod? No, did Rod no. write the lyrics? Rod always did the lyrics. Rod always was magic with lyrics. If you listen to all his songs, they were always everyday sayings. You know? Every picture yeah. tells a story. You're in my heart. Tonight's the night. You know, uh, hot legs. Uh, do you think I'm sexy? Yeah. You know, all, yeah. of, all of his big songs, your passion, you know? We're all like everyday words that you would say. They're not like something brand new. Right, right. You know? Well, I think that makes it relatable and, and it makes it easy for people exactly. to connect to it. Exactly. Like, and that's what was great about Rod and, and all his songs throughout his whole career. It was awesome. When it was finished, when we heard him do the vocals, we said, wow. We knew it was going to be a hit because everything we did was a hit back then. You know? Well, that was it. The record before, I mean, Footloose and Fancy Free was, was the number two record in the U.S., and the Hot Legs was the top 10 single. You Were In My Heart was the top 10 single. You know, so we, we knew we were going to have another big record. But Do You Think I'm Sexy and Blondes Have More Fun took it to the next level. Well, you know? check this out. The album went platinum by the end of 1978. It had only been out a month and a half, and it was already platinum. Exactly. Yeah, so we you were. had mentioned that Tom Dowd produced the record. He's a famous producer. He's produced so much amazing music. What yeah. was it like working with him? What was his production style? Well, he was very laid back. It was almost like he didn't produce it. <laughs> you, know? you know, he listened to Rod. But what he did do was when Rod had an idea, right? Yeah. If he had an idea like uh, for something, Tom would take the idea and, and tell the band musically what Rod was talking about. Like Rod would say, well, I want the key to go up. So Tom would say, well, I want the key to go from, you know, we're in G sharp, so let's take it up to A. So, so Tom would explain it in musical terms. So he was yeah. good at interpreting what Rod was hearing. I think that was his uh, really a fine point about him, as well as, you know, seeing a vision of Do You Think I'm Sexy with strings and everything. I don't think Rod saw that vision. You know, I think that was Tom's vision because he wanted to miss you by the Rolling Stones with all guitars. And, you know, Rod's version of was, you know? Yeah. You know, he took this, he took like the roadmap of that song 
and uh, yeah. made it our own. Made it a huge hit. Unbelievable. I mean, huge the biggest hit, hit he ever had. Hit. And I couldn't believe it. I said, I wrote the biggest hit Rod ever had. When we were in Australia in 79, it just hit number one in America. And Rod said, oh, man, the song we wrote just hit number one. I said, wow, that's unbelievable. I can't believe it. He says, so we have to buy dinner for everybody tonight. And when we bought dinners for the band, it was like six or $800. But he's saying, we're going to buy dinner for everybody on the tour. So it was a $1,500 <laughs> dinner. You know, and I, you know, I never got a dime yet from the song, you know. But there I am, right. splitting the $1,500 dinner with Rod. Yeah, but I bet it paid dividends. Oh, my God. It was unbelievable. Well, the second single that you guys released off the record was Ain't Love a Bitch, which came out in January of 79. Why don't you tell us about that one? It's another saying, right? The lyrics is, it's another saying, ain't love a bitch. You know, how many times do yep. people say that, you know? You know, yeah. that one was just, it wasn't recorded as a single. It was recorded right. as just another song on the record. You know, most of the songs were, were done like that. You know, there were certain songs that we recorded as singles. Sexy was recorded as a single, You're In My Heart, Hot Legs, Passion. But yeah. that song wasn't really recorded as a single. It was, it was just a statement, you know, a rod statement lyrically. And it was supposed to be along the lines of a, like a Maggie May kind of story, you know. I think uh, Ain't Love a Bitch went up to top 20. It was number 11 in the UK, number 22 in the US. That's what I thought. Yeah, I, I didn't think it made it to the top 10. Yeah, in England, everything Rod did was top 15. He could have fought it on a record if we went top 15. <laughs> <laughs> but thinking about it, you know, you would think the title track would have been the second single. Yeah, but it was the, the third single. It came it out in single. April. It came out in April of 79. We did the actual song. Blondes have more fun. A video for it. You know, we wanted to try something different. So I had all these cymbals around the drums. I had like maybe four or five cymbal stands holding cymbals. So I said, well, why don't we get these, all these blondes around the drum set holding my cymbal stands in, you know, two-piece outfits and just real sexy looking, you know, surrounding me. High heels, you know, all that stuff. And, and we played the song. And it was, it was why I had to take it easy on hitting the cymbals, though, because, you know, the cymbals are fairly heavy. <laughs> and then we had, to, we had to also tape up the bottom of the cymbals so you couldn't really hear them. The cymbals will drown out the PA system that's playing the track, and then you couldn't hear nothing, you know. But that was really, really cool. <laughs> So as you guys started to go out and tour and the record 
kept selling and getting bigger and bigger. Did you have to move to larger venues? Were you, were you seeing oh, the crowds yeah, but, get but, bigger but, and bigger yes, all year? Yes, Oh, totally. When we went to Australia and Japan, the Far East Tour, we used to call it, New Zealand, Australia. In New Zealand, we played a stadium, right? It must have been 40,000 people. The time before that, we, we played like small theaters. Not small theaters, maybe 3,000-foot theaters, you know, 5,000-seat theaters. When we went to Australia yeah. this time, we played... Six nights in an 8,000-seat place, plus a 35,000-seat stadium, right? And it was all sold out. We went to Tokyo. We played five nights at the Budokan, sold out, all in advance. You know, when we did the American tour, the American tour was sold out in advance, and we did six nights at the Forum in L.A., five nights at the Garden, Four nights at Cobo Hall, four nights at the Cow Palace, two nights at the Coliseum in Seattle. You know, it was it was crazy. I think we did Nassau Coliseum, too. After the five nights at the Garden, we might have done two at the Nassau Coliseum. So I tried to talk Rod into doing a seventh night at the Forum, because Led Zeppelin held the record at the Forum of seven nights. You know, he wouldn't do it. So he wanted to tie him? Yeah, I said, let's keep it at, let's keep it at six. We're, we're good. We sold out six. That's good. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> that was the biggest run of shows I've ever done in my life. It's funny because I was just uh, emptying out my press boxes as I'm moving my house in L.A., and I found all the itineraries and schedules for the Rod Tours, which I, I still kept. I read a lot of press about the tour and, you know, about uh, you know, my drum solo in the tour and about the band being... You know, one of the best rock bands on the planet, you know. And there's good musicians, you know, and Rod was the greatest frontman. There was nobody like Rod Stewart in those days. Yeah. He was the best. Yeah. He had the greatest voice, the most unique voice, and he was all over the stage. He was just tremendous. Wow. And he's always been like that. And right. it was funny because when I, I told Rod when we were going to Japan, I said, you know, I'm pretty big in Japan. So I've been in the Music Life polls, which is like a, a big poll in Japan, if the drums in the top five for the last, you know, 20 years. So we played Fukuoka. After my solo, Rod would come out and go, come on, a piece on drums. They were cheering so loud he couldn't even hear himself in the monitor, you know. <laughs> so after the show, he said, you know, we're doing a Tokyo uh, press conference. I want you to sit next to me because uh, obviously you're right. You, are, you do have a big following here. I said, oh, yeah, I told you. <laughs> I said, I wasn't lying, you know. <laughs> so then the next night we had the same reaction. Then the next day we went to Tokyo. We did a press conference. I sat next to Rod. And sure enough, the only ones that got questions in the whole band was me and Rod. I was, it was great. It was a good, like, he was like the captain. I was like the co-captain. <laughs> you know, it was great. Let's talk a little bit about what you've got going on this year, 2019. Well, actually, um, Right now, I'm getting a, a, a release ready for a January release for my complete Guitar Zeus records with four brand new tracks that never were released in America. You know, I got some of the great guitar players of all time on it, you know, like Brian May, Neil Sean, Ingve Malstein, Steve Moss, Paul Gilbert, Richie Sambora. So you couldn't get anybody who knew how to play? I, I got people that couldn't play. No, <laughs> they were they were they were awesome. Everybody played great solos. Brian May did a wah wah solo, which he never does, you know. No, and, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I got Zach Wild, Mick Mars, Elliot Easton from the Cars. I also got Bob oh, Daisley. Love him. 
I got Bob Daisley on bass. Tony Franklin's on all the bass tracks, mostly. I got Kelly Keeling uh, playing rhythm guitar and singing. I got Doug Pinnock doing a vocal. I got Ed Winner doing a vocal. And I got crazy combination, Doug Pinnock and, and Ingve Malmsteen. Because wow. Doug Ingve wanted to uh, do a track with Doug. Then I got Mick Mars wanted to be on a track with Edgar Winner. Yeah, it's crazy, you know, crazy combination. <laughs> Great know? collaborations. And what's the yeah. title of that one? It's called Carmine and Peace Guitar Zeus. And what about live shows for you this year? Live shows. We've got Vanilla Fudge shows. I got shows with my brother being booked. And there's supposed to be some more Rascal shows towards like summer and fall. Well, Carmine, thank you so much for taking time to tell us all these great stories and about your time playing with Rod and the Blondes Have More Fun album celebrating the 40th anniversary this year. Yeah, and uh, if people want to hear more about these kind of stories and the stories through my career, they can get my book, Stick It, My Life of Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll. You can get it at Amazon. They could order it on my website, com, which uh, I autograph it and send, we send it back. They could also get the Guitar Zeus record there as well. Cool. Well, thanks very much. Cool, man. Great to talk to you. See you on the road, okay? All right, cheers. Cheers. I'm tired of buying penthouse and we I'm hustling. It's Friday night. I'm all alone. Still a bachelor. Well, Rich, I sure did learn a lot about Blondes Have More Fun. So now's a great time to revisit this record. Of course, it's available on all of your favorite streaming platforms. You can listen to it on Spotify, Apple Music. Go out and listen to it where you like to listen to it and have a blast because it is a really fun record. And last but certainly not least, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next RhinoCast. Executive producers for Rhino, John Hughes and Lauren Goldberg. Produced for Rhino by Pop Colt and Rich Mayhan Promotions. All rights reserved. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.